it's just fairly clear for me as a conservative that somebody who believes in institutions, believes in protecting norms around law and not simply relying on law, it's not a hard decision because uh, what I'm concerned about is a president can erode presidential norms all by themselves. They don't need Congress. They don't need the courts. They can just erode those norms. And when you erode the norms that surround law, then you're relying just on law. And that's unstable because that foundation of those institutions can crack if you don't have the support of norms that go way beyond the law. And that's what I think we're seeing is an erosion of those norms, particularly presidential norms. And then you get closer and closer to that foundation of those institutions and they can crack when they're under pressure. And so that's why, no, it wasn't a hard decision. I joined Republicans for Biden. Welcome to the award-winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values. We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. Bob and I begin our second conversation lightheartedly. In the later part, it gets a little more serious. I ask him about the decision as a conservative, which you may have read in the news, to endorse Biden for president. My question to you, the listener, will Bob describe that decision as hard or easy? Did he face serious repercussions, wide support, or something else? What would you do in his situation where you feel right about something, but your community feels a different way? I couldn't put into words what he does. It's his leadership journey, so you'll have to listen. The beginning, the lighthearted part, covers mulberry trees, ginkgo trees, and how our views of nature change when we act in stewardship of it. Here's another question for you, the listener. Who traveled more since our last conversation? Bob, the guy who wants to travel but can't, but committed, if he does, to bring a spoon with him to avoid polluting? Or me, the guy who isn't flying? Again, you'll have to listen. We also talk about conservatism, sustainable living, and how to practice them both. Do they need reconciliation or do they make sense together already? Let's listen to Bob. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Bob Inglis. Bob, how are you doing? Good, Joshua. It's great to be back with you. I was just, uh, I've been thinking about you with uh, my mulberry trees producing and uh, hearing about how you're you uh, went and found a mulberry tree in your neighborhood. Oh, I shouldn't have told you that. You said that because now <laughs> other, other people will come find your tree. Oh, well, I'll keep it quiet. One of the great things is that mulberry trees and fruit trees are everywhere. And so they can find their own. I've also found <laughs> nearby me, there are some uh, ginkgo trees. Most of them apparently are male, which don't produce seeds. Yeah. But there's a couple, I found the seeds and brought them home and you open them up and cook them. And did I hear right that your mulberry trees are going now? Because here they're in June, but you're south. Oh, no, they're done now. Okay. Yeah. Because otherwise I was about to get on the train. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't know you could use the the, the ginkgo. It's, it's often called the stinky ginkgo. Leaves, yeah. But you can use the, the fruit to, for something? Yeah, the nuts. In in Asia, it's sold. They, they sell them on the street like chestnuts. Really? You roast them, yeah. Huh. So the flesh comes off and inside is a nut. I didn't know that. Yeah. Huh. So should I get on the train now? <laughs> yes, I really want a ginkgo tree. We had a ginkgo tree, but it 
died. Uh, I mean, we, we put it in the ground and um, I don't know, something happened to it. Anyway, it didn't make it, but it was sold as a guaranteed male ginkgo because uh, the problem with the female ginkgo is those, if you don't use the fruit, it sits on the ground it and it really yeah. smells terrible. So yeah, I, I didn't know you could use them. So see, now I've, I've, I'll be on the lookout for female ginkgos. See, that's what you, you work on, on climate. I presume also environment in general. And the more, from my experience is the more that I learn about the environment, the more I learn about fruit and, and vegetables and, and you know, stuff that I eat. And what's also listeners can hear happening now is that I'm finding increasingly the opposite of pollution is connecting with people around you. Yeah. Likewise, if you're going to pollute, you want to not know the people whose world you're polluting. You want to separate them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Make them less than human, yeah. Case in point, when you're traveling, traveling is very distancing. And you were talking, when last we spoke, you talked, I heard frustration in your voice of when you travel, you're, you're stuck in a situation where there's all the stuff you have to throw away. Yes, yeah. And proof against that would be, or protection against that would be a spoon. I'm not sure yes. if you've traveled since then. I haven't, but I've got the spoon. I've got the spoon in my, uh, in my bag, but like we talked about, but yes, no traveling, which is, Okay, actually, I mean, I, I, I do miss the you know the interaction with people, but uh, you know, uh, for example, two years ago, I spoke to the Metropolitan Republican Club in New York City, and there were I think forty people there. This year, I spoke to them by Zoom, and there were one hundred and seventy-six people who viewed it. So, I think we did better <laughs> by mm-hmm. not flying, not getting a hotel, not having meals expense, not having Ubers. I mean, we actually did better, but uh, still you miss the personal interaction. Well, I'm going to, you also mentioned last time that you said, oh, Josh, you probably don't travel that much. And I didn't correct you as I do with many people, which is to say, I'm not flying. That's not the same as not traveling. Right. So I have upped you on travel, maybe that my mom was about a hundred miles away and I have this new used bike. And my plan was to ride my first hundred mile ride up to my mom's house. Wow. And as it happened, it's by bike, we can't take the highways, so it would be 120 miles. And I went 50 miles and realized I wasn't going to make it the whole way. And she was a little nervous about, I'd done a lot of hills at that point, but there, it was going to get more. And so if I kept going, she'd have to come and pick me up. And we were a little worried about, I didn't want to be responsible of, um, I have no symptoms, but I don't want to bring a virus into her house. Yeah. So after 50 miles, I decided to come back. And, and declare victory, still doing 100 miles in a day. Yeah. So I did my first 100-mile ride since the 80s. Wow. And now in terms of total distance, not that much. In terms of life experience and learning about myself and seeing the Hudson River. Beautiful. Wow. You know, so, so this wasn't business travel. This was personal travel. Yeah. But I'm putting it out there because not flying doesn't mean not traveling. Gotcha. Yeah. Makes sense. And... uh I think I'll probably do it again, partly because I went and made it to Bear Mountain. So people near New York know Bear Mountain is like right up to West Point. And so I went right up there and visit the guys who have been on my podcast from there. And then I could ride across the river to Garrison and take the train home. And that'd be like a nice 60, 70 mile day. Yeah. Wow. That's neat. So travel is available. Particularly this time, this time of year would be beautiful, right? October, it would be a glorious time. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be, uh, nerdy, geeky, and say like, yeah, the times of year between January and December are my favorite. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's always beautiful. Yeah, that's true. Well, there were some parts that were um, right along the river 
there was a park from between Nyack and, and Haverstraw that was just miles and miles of a dirt, packed dirt right on the river. Wow. And the river was huge at that point. And they were doing some construction. So I felt kind of good because it, the construction was very small, but a guy let us special through. So the rest was no construction. We could ride along, no problem. And it feels kind of neat. Like, oh, I'm a VIP. <laughs> Nothing special, but it felt that way. Uh, that's great. And just stunningly beautiful. But even there, there were still wrappers on the ground. But by the road, everywhere, every, probably every 10 feet, there were wrappers, bottles, cans. Wow. And, you know, I probably didn't think of you at that point because we've got to make this a nonpartisan issue. Yeah. The beauty of the land and the water is, has, how can we let this polarize us? How can we let people who are going to polarize us use that? We must take it back. Yeah. If anything can bring us together, it's that we don't want, you know, I didn't make it. It was there. I was born into it. Yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. That's neat. I think that a lot of the reason people want to, like people want to travel because they want to get away from how messy it is. This morning, I was awakened before my alarm by trash trucks picking up garbage. They have to go at night because they don't want to congest the traffic too much, I, I presume. Most of the trash is stuff that people didn't use disposable stuff for before. Coffee cups and water bottles. Anyway, huh. I'm curious if the conversation that we had before led to other things. Because you were thinking about other parts of your life. You're thinking about solar and things like that, that felt farther off and bigger. But I wonder if our conversation made them smaller or it led to the middle steps or anything like that. Uh, yeah, you know, I've got a, a colleague at RepublicEan.org, Wen Lee, who uh, it was inspiring me yesterday. She she just bought a, a battery. Uh, so they've uh, she and her husband have a battery wall. And they are a net producer of electricity in uh, Los Angeles uh, to, to the grid. Um, and so they are, it's pretty impressive uh, what they've done with their house. So I'm going to be learning from her as they go along with uh, possibilities of solar for me in the future. So we'll see how that goes. But uh, yeah, I'm very excited about her purchase of a, a battery. That's going to mean that um, they literally can turn themselves off the grid and and just power them themselves. But typically they're on the grid, but as such, they're actually um, contributing electricity because they're a net producer, not a net consumer of electricity at their house. Do I hear a bit of envy in your voice or? Yeah. Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. Really, well, of course, now this is also true that she lives in Southern California. So there's a lot of sunshine there, the more sunshine than maybe here in South Carolina. But it's pretty exciting, isn't it? To, to have such an energy efficient house as, uh, as Wynn has, that's, that's really great. Yeah, I was, from a leadership perspective, I like to look at people's emotions and, and their viewpoints. And I find that when people get more into, like if you just have a thing, you know, a wire connected to the grid, you don't think about it. But when you have your own power source, you think, oh, if I turn this on, I can't turn that on. Yeah. I mean, of course, if they're still connected to the grid, they can, but they start, there's an experiment. I think it, was an, it may have been a natural experiment, accidental, that there were these bunch of houses, maybe it was in the US, maybe it was in the Netherlands. Like, and one group of houses was using substantially less power than another. And they were identical houses, except for some reason, one, in one house, the meters were in the house and the others, they were out of the house. And the ones with the meters could see how much they were using and they were using less power. 
It, that makes sense. Yeah. Because when you see that thing spinning around, you start realizing, well, a little bit slower, please. Uh, yeah. I remember we, our first house, my wife and I bought, had uh, baseboard heaters. You know, these are just terrible ways to heat. You know, I mean, it's like uh, it's resistance heating. It's terribly inefficient. And so we bought it during the spring and summer when it came to be fall and we turned those things on for the first time. I went outside and watched the meter spinning like it was out of control. It looked like it was going to catch fire because uh, it's going so fast. <laughs> That's when I knew, okay, we got to get something else besides this. And we, we did. But uh, yeah, it, it'd be helpful to have those inside, like you're saying, so people could actually see what they're, what they're using. Yeah. And then when it's your battery and you think, hmm, this is going to last me all night. Well, maybe I'll turn that off for a little while and that'll, that'll make it last. Mm-hmm. You know, you talked about your journey and since between last time and now, you've been in the news for your endorsements. Is that something, can I ask you about that? I mean, it's, yeah, sure. Was it, you've endorsed Biden yeah, and you're a Republican. Yeah. And I'm most curious about, well, I'm partly curious about what the repercussions are, how people felt about it. But I'm also curious about you internally. I presume it was a difficult decision, but one you knew you had to make, but I'm not sure. I'm curious your personal journey in that part. Well, yes, the premise is correct that uh, there's been some reaction. If you, uh, in fact, Sunday morning, it just happened to be served on my phone a Facebook uh, notice about, uh, you know, somebody commenting uh, to me or whatever. And so, then I opened it up and there are like 246 comments. I realized, whoa, 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 whoa. What's, what's happening? 246 comments there. And then a friend texted me saying, saw your op-ed in the Greenville News. And I realized, oh my, that thing that I wrote for USA Today, which is owned, uh, owned of course, by Gannett, which also owns the Greenville News, uh, that piece had run in the Greenville News as well. And yes, yeah, so the reaction I will tell you, if you went through that Facebook feed was... Uh, was roasted Bob that uh, on Sunday morning is what that was. But uh, uh-huh. from Republicans who were disappointed, but I think there are many Republicans who also realize that it makes sense that this is a moment of crisis that we're in, uh, that, um, uh, that really we got to rise to uh, protecting the country and not care about party at this point. Um, that's, that's my view. And so the answer to the, to your question is it wasn't that much of a struggle for me. I just think it's, it's just fairly clear for me as a conservative, that's somebody who believes in institutions, believes in protecting norms around law and not simply relying on law. It's not a hard decision because uh, what I'm concerned about is a president can erode presidential norms all by themselves. They don't need Congress. They don't need the courts. They can just erode those norms. And when you erode the norms that surround law, then you're relying just on law. And that's, that is unstable because that foundation of those institutions can crack if you don't have the support of norms that go way beyond the law. And that's what I think we're seeing is an erosion of those norms, particularly presidential norms. And then you get closer and closer to that foundation of those institutions and they can crack when they're under pressure. And so that's why, no, it wasn't a hard decision. Uh, so I, I joined Republicans for Biden. It's interesting that you didn't mention the the climate or the environment. In- oh, of course, that's uh, for sure as well, um, is that uh, that's uh, the 
legislation I'd most like to see at this point is uh, something is action on climate. And, you know, I think that's going to happen regardless of the outcome of the presidential race. Uh, just it's going to be harder if Donald Trump is reelected. But for everybody else that's serving in the House or the Senate, their time horizon is way longer than his. You know, Donald Trump's time horizon is between now when we're speaking and November 3rd, which may be after some people are listening to your podcast. But anyway, there's a period of time, which is that's his that's his uh, only horizon. Then he has no elections left in him. He's done with uh, electoral politics. But if you are Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader of the House, you're looking at 2022. 2024, 2026. If you're a U.S. senator, you're doing the same. And your time horizon is much longer. And so they're going to be respond to this crisis in climate. And it's so there'll be a block potentially if, if President Trump is reelected. But I think that ultimately we're going to get over that block because enough people will be focused on a longer time horizon and saying, gee, we got to do something about this. If, if nothing else for practical political reasons, which is that uh, you're going to lose a generation of young people who say, well, we're conservatives, we're progressive young people, and we want action on climate change. So if you're not willing to lead, get out of the way. And so I think that uh, we're going to get there. We're just going to get, we'd get there easier if um, with uh, some help from the White House. So if between now and 30 some days from now, what should a, what would a conservative do? I think that a conservative should really ask themselves, is this what we want? If I wrote a piece, as I just mentioned in USA Today, that was aimed specifically at fellow Christian believers who are also political conservatives. And the case I made was in 2016, we could be forgiven for thinking it was a binary choice between uh, for example, the Hillary Clinton, who was really her career has been in in part about campaigning for abortion rights. Joe Biden is a labor union Democrat who I've never seen or has anybody ever heard him speak comfortably on the topic of abortion? Answer no. So he's not an abortion rights campaigner. He's a labor union Democrat. And so the binary choice we faced in 16 is not what we face in 20. In 20, we face a choice between a guy who has eroded presidential norms to the place that the republic is at peril, and a, a, interestingly enough, a Democrat who believes in those norms. So in that way, uh, don't, don't let any progressives hear this in your audience, okay? In that way, Joe is actually sort of a conservative compared to Donald Trump. It's the case that The, the Economist is making, I think, this week, is it, is it actually a Joe Biden is more conservative in that way than Donald Trump. He believes in institutions, Joe Biden does. He believes in presidential norms. Donald Trump, I don't know whether he understands those norms or whether he has the capacity to to understand them. I, I'm not sure that he processes those in the way that, um, you know, a, a healthy person would process them. It seems like what you're saying is thought out, it's clear, and it seems like other conservatives, there's plenty who, there. I think there are a lot of never-Trumpers who were like, well, Trump, what is it like looking at others who look at the same situation as you and fall in line? Yeah, it is. It's hard. It's really hard for me because uh, to me, the, the clear and present danger is so obvious. But for others, they're not seen it that way. And I guess I've just got to try to respect them and say, well, um, I hear what you're saying. But the, the thing that I've 
I don't want to be is I don't want to be a consequentialist. You know, I'd prefer to be in the deontological school. You know, here, here's uh, what I understand. I'm, I'm not a great philosopher or political uh, uh, thinker, but I will unpack that. You know, you, you can be a consequentialist. That's somebody who believes that the consequences are what matter. And so the pejorative way of looking at that is, well, that's the ends justify the means or might makes right. It's just a look at the consequences. What do I get out of this? Whereas the deontological approach is that, no, you want to do the right thing the right way. And I really think that you want to do, you want to be that way. You want to be, you, you want to follow the deontological approach. You want to do the right thing the right way. And so, yeah, for people who are choosing to be consequentialist, I just sort of scratch my head about them. I, I don't, particularly people of faith that are choosing to be consequentialist. That's a category that I think needs to be challenged and that challenged, you know, with love, but uh, challenged because it's, I think it's just a wrong-headed approach. It'll end you up in some bad places. Um, you should always try to do the right thing the right way, not use the ends to justify the means. You know, I mentioned, I think before I hit record about, it was William Wilberforce uh, an influence on you? Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. He's a, a hero for sure. You, you said he's a hero of yours and he's a hero of mine. I mean, yeah, this is a guy who who never gave up on trying to outlaw slavery in the British Empire. And, you know, it was a tough slog. I um, mean, wow, ups and downs and failures and reverses, two steps forward, you know, a step and a half or maybe two steps back. I mean, it was it was rough, but ultimately succeeded. And what a what is the success it was? Sometimes I think of when someday people view environmental legislation as we view like traffic laws. I wonder if a Republican who was pro-environment a long time before everyone else was resurges back into the scene. Yes. I hope that, you know, in a way, Alex Bosmoski, who's worked with me at Republican.org, has an interesting thought that, it, that maybe if we're successful, nobody will ever talk about us because 200 years from now, the problem will have been avoided. And, uh, and yeah, what was that about? Climate change? That would actually be a great outcome, wouldn't it? Is that people forgot that it was an issue. It's sort of be like, you know, on the island of Manhattan, uh, the problem was there were straight line projections that the horse manure would get to the seventh floor windows. Mm-hmm. Those were not inaccurate calculations, right? It was uh, just a the increasing population, the use of horses. You calculate the amount coming out of the south end of a northbound horse, <laughs> um, and uh, you can get to the seventh floor windows. But then, of course, Henry Ford came along with a new invention. And uh, of course, we like to make the point as conservatives working on climate change that just imagine how much more quickly uh, Henry Ford's technology would have been adopted if the city of New York had caused, had forced people to take care of their own horse's manure. In other words, diaper your horse mm-hmm. and carry that stuff off of our island. But no, what they did for a long time was the, ho- the south end of the northbound horse would produce its results and the city hired street sweepers to come pick it up, right? But if you make the people stop and pick up their own horse's poop, 
I bet Henry Ford's sales would have gone up a lot faster, don't you? Because people would say, well, wait a minute, I don't want this stinky stuff going around with me all day, say in the summer in New York and then back off the island. Are you kidding me? We don't want that. Okay, well, then Henry Ford's got a solution for you. So anyway, it's the same thing as climate change. Is once we make people accountable, then uh, we'll all be aware of uh, the stinkiness of what we're doing. And then we'll, uh, we'll want to innovate. And that innovation is going to produce nice things for us. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. Well, you're making me laugh. You're making me smile. And you're reminding me that last time we spoke and you said, do you like my view of, of climate issues? or It's an accountability issue. Yeah. And businesses can't run if you don't account for these things. Yeah, And I believe that we have to cut out now, though. If I could keep you on, I'd keep you on. But I, uh, your people said to, we had to end at a certain time. Well, 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 I can go a few more minutes. Keep going. For, any, any other questions? Yeah, I can, I can go. Let's go until we get 10 minutes. Well, okay. Now, as I remember last time, I said to you, it seemed to me conservatives, business people, it seems like it should make a lot of sense to try to run a business off your assets and not revenues doesn't make sense. And to try to run a business where you don't account, if, if you're charging costs from sales to engineering, you can't run a company that way. And so if you got some, some industry that's producing all sorts of pollution that the taxpayers are funding to clean up, but not the business itself, then things that should be unprofitable appear profitable. Yeah. Things that should be unprofitable seem profitable. And I hope I got them I yeah. I said both the right way. And business people which don't necessarily have to be conservative, but you know, business people, business-friendly people, I would think would get that most. Oh, yeah. They do. Uh, the good news is, Joshua, they do. I mean, and, and sometimes I think I frustrate audiences because I just don't go ahead and say, just internalize the negative externalities. You know, and a lot of people, particularly the business-friendly uh, uh, types in the crowd would say, oh, yeah, finally, he just told us straight out what he's talking about. Okay, move along to the next thing, you know. But typically, I, I take a long time to unpack that because not everybody's familiar with that concept, but business people are. They say, of course, you want to internalize. In other words, you want to bring the cost, the cost to society that are being imposed by the production of a product onto the product. Because once it's on the product and accounted there properly, then uh, society will see the true cost of the product and decide whether they want it or not. And quite often there's somebody across town that can produce a similar widget that doesn't impose on society soot or CO2 or whatever but they can't make it in the marketplace because the guy across town who's getting away with socializing their soot or socializing their CO2, by the way, conservatives aren't into socializing things, as you know. Uh, they're into socializing pollution. 
Yes, that's why I use that, use that terminology yeah. so we'll understand, fellow conservatives will understand that's what we're talking about is yeah. socializing soot, socializing pollution. And so if you bring accountability for that, which is a bedrock conservative concept that's also agreeable to many progressives, obviously, is that then what you do is then you have a, an apples to apples comparison in the marketplace, all the costs are in. And now the gal across town who can produce the widget without that cost is beating me, who is now accountable for what I used to be getting away with. Mm -hmm. Well, that stinks for me, but for years it's been stinking for my neighbors. (laughs) So now it starts to stink for me because the gal across town is beating me. But isn't that the way it should be? Yes. Because she's not producing something that's harming society. And so it's a it's just a concept of accountability. So yes, I think you're you're right to be focused on that word. And by the way, it's a word that is really sort of a bedrock principle of conservatism, especially conservatives of faith, really believe in accountability. They believe that blessings flow from accountability. Havoc results from the lack of accountability. Climate change is that havoc. Yeah, I come to it from a leadership perspective where when I was a child, I didn't want accountability. I didn't want to be responsible. I wanted to do whatever I felt like. And a big part of maturity for me has been that I like responsibility. I like accountability. You know, it would be nice to run around and not care about the consequences of my actions, but it turns out it makes my life better. If I only think of myself, yes, I can see why I'd rather, you know, if I want something and I could steal it and not have to worry about anything except that I, now I have it and I didn't before, but it doesn't work that well as a way of living a life. No, it's, it's surely not terribly noble life, is it? It's what we grow out of when we leave egocentrism behind. You know, you're supposed to leave that about two years old, right? When a two-year-old thinks you're at the center of the universe. And as you grow up, we all should come to the place realizing, no, no, you know what? I am not the center of the universe. There are a lot of other people around here and I need to be responsible as to them. And then I can actually, there's dignity in that, right? There's, there's it's uh, otherwise... Gee, it's just not a very dignified life to not care about what you're doing to other people. Yeah, I like comfort. I like convenience. And they usually go along with, but if I have to choose between comfort and convenience or helping my fellow man, my fellow humans, I'm going to choose helping. Although generally helping is still not uncomfortable. Yeah. Also, you're talking about a, the systemic effect of, of if I can do something and they can't, then one company thinks I'm at least my competition. So you, you'd want to have a, a playing field that's level for everybody. And if it's not level, that, I don't see how you can call it. That's not a free market to me. If, if it's a playing field, it's not level. But another systemic effect yeah. that I also just learned about was that, speaking of, of Wilberforce and Newton and, and, and uh, Clarkson, the abolitionists in England, one of the main arguments from the companies, the, indus- the slave industry, was that if we don't do it, if the British Empire doesn't do it, the French will. And the, the Spanish will, and the Portuguese will, and the, and the Dutch will. So all we would do by outlawing the slave trade and slavery later would be that we would lose. But that's not what happened. Historically, after the British outlawed the slave trade in 1807, partly because they now could, because they had, I guess, what you might call the moral standing to do it, but also because internally they had the financial incentive, they persuaded the others to pass the laws too, and exactly the opposite of what people said would happen. They said, others will just do what we're doing. That's not what happened. They stopped others. They took the leadership role. They were leading pro-slavery. And then when they switched, they, they didn't stand still. They led abolition. 
yeah, back to the consequentialist versus the deontological approach. That's it, right? I mean, the consequences are that maybe you could say, well, slavery is working out for us. Look, it created a great deal of wealth. For some people, uh, it was terribly morally atrocious uh, for others and for really everyone. So the deontological solution would be to do the right thing the right way and then wait and see what happens. And, uh, you know, if you go down for a little while, but then come up later, well, that's good. And, you know, something else you mentioned, Josh, was interesting. You, you said free markets. And maybe what we at republicen.org should talk about is more accountable markets because, you know, free market for a lot, when progressives hear that, they think, oh, golly, that just doesn't work. You know, there's no such thing as a free market. The government is around in various places. There's crony capitalism. You know, the people with vested interests have ways of protecting their vested interests. So maybe it's an accountable market rather than a free market where, yeah, all costs are in, all subsidies are out, now compete on that level playing field. And we think that at that point, free people engaged in free enterprise, accountable enterprise, can deliver innovation faster than government mandates or regulations or incentives because it just has accountability built in. So that's why we're so into a carbon pricing mechanism, a carbon tax that's paired with a dollar-for-dollar dollar reduction in other taxes or a dividend of all that money back so there's no growth of government, and applied to imports so that our trading partners, after they lose, if they want to challenge that in the World Trade Organization, decide it's in their interest as well to do the same thing at home. Then what you end up with is 7 billion people around the world seeing the true cost of burning fossil fuels. And at that point, they really are looking for the gal across town who's producing the widget that doesn't have those costs. Because once I get made accountable for my widget, that its process does create a lot of cost to society, and those now get reflected in the price of my product, they're going to choose her product over mine. Now, if I'm smart... I innovate too. And I say, well, let's see, let me see how she's doing over there. Let me see if I could do something similar and get rid of these costs that I'm otherwise imposing on society. Then it's a win-win for both of us and particularly a win for society. So it is. it all boils down to accountability, really. I concur. I offer a friendly suggestion. Carbon tax, as a carbon-based being, I like carbon. A pollution tax or an externality tax as a, as a name is what I've been promoting. Just a name shift, the exact same thing that you're talking about. I like the idea of taxing pollution more than ta- taxing carbon, just, just the words in my head, or an externality tax. Yeah. I think the wording change would make a difference. But what you said to me is like eminently reasonable. And I have to, I'll, I'll make my, another little joke of what you're talking. I, I saw a documentary on free markets where you take away more and more regulation and people can do more and more things. It was called The Godfather. And it was showed competition when, when the gloves were off and you could do whatever you wanted. You could kill your enemy. You could, you yeah. know, that's, yeah. that would be more and more, less and less regulation. If yeah. you could literally, well, I don't want to get too morbid, but that would be like yeah. more, less regulation. That, that to me is not like a level playing. Uh, maybe, I don't know. But yeah, accountability, responsibility. I think responsibility is something that we would want. Any parent, I would think responsibility, it's like a, a, it's a great thing. We want to be responsible for what we do affects others, especially, especially those who are helpless to defend themselves against things that we do that would hurt them. Really, that's got to be true. Yes. Whoops. <laughs> Maybe that's them now. <laughs> yeah. 
Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, let me. Uh, Let's use that as the. Uh, yeah. I should go. Yes. Uh, so uh, it was your helper saying, "We heard what you said, and you weren't allowed to take those ten <laughs> minutes. You have another call or something like that." Yeah, exactly. Well, great to talk with you, Joshua. Uh, it's always fun. Same here, and I hope to have you back again, especially if at some point you're traveling in some way, and you have, you know, if what if our conversation and what you the frustration you felt and you described. If it leads you to act or, or perceive things differently, I hope you'll come back and share things, maybe after the election also, to hear your thoughts on how things went. Let's do it. That'd be great. Bob Inglis, thank you very much. Good to be with you. Thanks, Joshua. Bye. See ya. I don't know about you, but I found that conversation delightful. 2020, for the most part, it seems to me, has meant most political talk is polarizing and divisive. Well, I've learned that any two people can find something to disagree on and, and, and create conflict and polarization. But that has also meant that I found that any two people can find things to learn from each other. I believe that's what we were doing. I hope he's wrong about future generations not knowing what changed things. I believe that people who take a stand today to live by their values, when the overwhelming culture motivates people to keep doing what they've been doing, maybe recycling a bit here and there when convenient, even among people who call themselves environmentalists, who mostly tell others to change first before they themselves change, I believe that we, the people who are acting now, hopefully you as well, will leave legacies that others will look back on with admiration. Speaking of which, he described Wilberforce's difficult, decades-long challenges. Whatever challenges he and his peers faced, I know that he, William Wilberforce, and his peers felt better doing what he and they did, knowing his world and how doing anything different would prolong an industry that he knew that he had to do everything he could to end. Something similar there hit me yesterday as I walked home from my daily picking up other people's litter in Washington Square Park. I used to think it was curious to view picking up litter as a spare time activity, like going to the park or the beach. Yesterday, I asked myself as I was walking home, given my neighborhood's litter, what would I rather do? Watch Game of Thrones? What would you rather do? Clean up your neighborhood or watch Game of Thrones? How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.